Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Sutherland and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK-centric, on the big issues of the day. So, Peter, welcome back to the uh, Moses and Methuselah podcast. Today, we're recording this on the 13th of April. We're moving into the first fortnight of the second quarter of the year. We did a kind of review of the first quarter last time we spoke, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, well, as always, life moves on. It's a good time, I think, to go back to this central issue that we've been talking about for a while now, which is how are the central banks and the Federal Reserve in particular going to deal with this uh, dilemma, if you like, that they have, which is balancing the need to bring down inflation, which is one of their requirements, and uh, taking care not to uh, promote more instability in the financial system. Uh, we saw that banking issues last month with uh, Credit Suisse going to UBS, uh, forced marriage, uh, and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. So, well, the markets have stabilised since then, Peter, I think it's fair to say, but uh, the issues have not gone away. It's nice to be back online, Jonathan, and what you say is that the issues have not gone away. It's exactly that. There are a lot of moving parts, I'm sure you'll agree, but if you look at what the main trend has been this year, let's say since the beginning of the year, is what you and I in previous podcasts have called the clash of the titans. So you had the titan on the left, which is the world's central banks being very hawkish, not giving up on their hawkish messages. And on the other side, on the right, you have the bond market, not to mention the stock market. That's a slightly more complicated one, but the bond market, where the yields have come down, have refused to go back up, even in the light of sticky inflation numbers. And we all know the narrative. The narrative is that inflation is abating, but core inflation is not, is sticky. And this is the conundrum that there is out there. And so in January, it was the bond markets that won the round. In February, it was the central banks that won the round. And in March, it's once again the bond markets that have won the third round. And so you find some media commentators who say the market is wrong. And then you find other people like Moses and or Methuselah who know that the market, especially the bond market, is usually right in what it predicts. That's the conundrum. What do you make of that conundrum, Jonathan? Well, I'll tell you what I think. And uh, maybe that I don't agree with you for once, Peter. I don't know. But sometimes we disagree. <laughs> and that's always interesting. <laughs> I think it's, you know, if we go back to the conversation we had a few months ago, and we were talking about the Fed and the pivot, this whole idea that the Fed might change course. And I said, I just didn't think that was likely. And they're sticking to their guns. So far, anyway, the rhetoric, they're still talking this week, they were still talking about, you know, possibly a further rate rise. And they've raised their, you know, target Fed funds rate uh, to between 4.75 and 5%, which is, as you say, is a very dramatic increase on uh, where it was only a year ago. And as you'd expect, the very short-term bonds or bills in the US are trading around that level, uh, but all the other maturities are trading below that. So you're absolutely right. And yields have come down, but they haven't come down that much, I don't think. I mean, I would say that they are 
using technical jargon, which I like to use, uh, they are ranging at the moment. We haven't yet decisively broken in either direction. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of you know speculation out there about exactly what will happen. I don't think the Fed is going to ease up anytime soon. Uh, I mean, I think they're going to do one more rate hike and then they may pause at that point because they'll feel that they have uh, want to see more evidence of inflation coming down. It is coming down in the US, but it's not coming down uh, yet. Uh, core inflation, as you say, is still pretty robust. I wanted to quote you something that uh, Paul Volcker, you know, going back to Paul Volcker in the 1980s, the famous Fed chairman, who was asked by his uh, colleague, his vice chairman, a gentleman called Alan Blinder, you may recall him many years ago. He asked Volcker, how can monetary policy help to bring down inflation? And Volcker's answer was, through bankruptcies. And basically, that is the kind of Volcker medicine. And I think that, you know, it's very hard. If you're at the Fed, you're on the central bank, you've got this mandate to bring inflation down and to have a mind on employment levels as well. But, you know, the, the economy is still proving so resilient, which I think is the big surprise to everybody, how resilient the economy is being. I don't think they've got any evidence. They've got no reason to do what the bond market is suggesting, which is to, uh, you know, stop tightening anytime soon. And I don't think they will. They've got to see some evidence that the economy is slowing. We're getting a little bit of evidence about that. But it's a long way from being, you know, the crash that uh, some people think the Fed policy will be driven by when they when they break something. So I don't think we're there yet. So I don't think the Fed is going to change course uh, in any meaningful way in the short term. I mean, I could put an argument to you this way, Peter, briefly, which is the market saying the long-term bond yields and also the break-evens, the the kind of uh, inflation the market is expecting. You could argue that the reason they're so low is because they actually think the Fed will break something. And therefore, they may actually get inflation a long way down. And we may have an increase in unemployment. I'm sure we will. And we may see corporate earnings come down. So, you know, these people who've been saying for weeks and months now that the, the Fed's going to change course, I don't see that happening. But I do respect what the bond markets have seen to be implying, which is that in terms of where the bond market's going, they're not going higher, as you say. You touched on corporate earnings quite rightly. And we should discuss that, but we'll do that in a minute because that relates to the stock market rather than for the bond market. What I find quite interesting is that this core inflation, which is proving to be so sticky all over the, the place, actually, not just in the US, but also in Europe, has a lot to do with rental prices. And rental prices have been stubbornly high. And the rental prices apparently are a relatively important weighting in that basket. But how can you have a durable persistence of rising rental prices on the one hand, and at the same time, commercial real estate and real estate generally uh, prices going down, in some cases even below the pre-pandemic levels. There are quite a few commentators who are more and more now are saying that the commercial real estate is the next shoe to drop, particularly in the office blocks, for all the reasons that we know about people, the way that they've changed their working habits and so on. And that if real estate prices in that space start to contract, then the banks who lend money to these borrowers will be in trouble because the borrowers will have to put up collateral, which they don't have, and they can't sell the real estate because it's illiquid. But the figures that come out in core inflation, they are very much lagging indicators. So I don't think that you can marry off the lagging indicator of stubbornly high rental inflation with the weakening of the underlying real estate prices. I think something has to give there. 
And uh, I agree with you that the central banks are intent on being hawkish. And your view is that they will continue to be hawkish for a while yet, which may very well be the case. But on the other hand, if the banks get into trouble, to quote Paul Volcker, he wants to see bankruptcies, the first place where you see bankruptcies in the banking system, of course. And if the regional banks, of which there are many, very many hundreds or thousands in the US, for example, if they start suffering losses on their real estate portfolios, then you'll see that this lagging indicator, which contains rental prices, could turn very quickly. That's personally what I think is going to happen. I mean, it is true, I think, to say that uh, the Fed is also aware that the banking system will help, if you like, to tighten policy, uh, which is effectively what you're saying. Uh, and that will show up in a number of places. And it won't be so much the price of borrowing that, that is affected, but the availability of credit. In other words, the weaker brethren in the economic system will be the ones who fall, whether that's corporate bankruptcies or real estate funds or over-levered uh, private equity and so on. So I absolutely agree with that. I think the other point to make, though, which was made to me quite tellingly uh, the other day by uh, a very wise, experienced investor called Peter Spiller in, here in the UK, uh, his point was the oddity about where we are at the moment is that the Fed is on its course of tightening, as we know, uh, raising interest rates and uh, reversing QE to some extent. But meanwhile, the government is actually spending like there's no tomorrow. Uh, it is extraordinary that the US government has a deficit of 5% of GDP at a time when they're effectively full employment. And the recent stimulus from, you know, the Biden administration adds up to around uh, $3 trillion worth of stimulus through these various measures they're taking. So his point was, you know, monetary policy and fiscal policy should ideally be working together, but they're actually working against each other at the moment. The government's got its foot on the accelerator and the uh, central banks have got their <laughs> foot on the brake. And therefore, this is why we're getting this confused picture, because, you know, we know there's still a lot of money sloshing around in the system from the stimulus measures of the past, uh, which is why kind of consumer spending remains, you know, so strong, surprisingly strong in many people's eyes. So we've got this kind of mixed picture. And it's that's what's making it so difficult to be sure about where we're going. If it was just the Fed in isolation or other central banks in isolation or the banking system in isolation, that would be easy to predict. But I think that where we are, in my view, is that the you know, investors are still, as you say, kind of really divided over where we're going. And the central banks don't really know where they're going either. They're looking, watching the data. So we're in this kind of period of flux and we're waiting to see who comes out on top. And you may be right that the bond market is going to win this one. But I think we're still in this interregnum period where we've got the brake and the accelerator going. And it's almost certainly we're going to see, I think, more volatility as a result of that. So I think my crystal ball is very clouded. It is normally anyway, but uh, at the moment particularly so. So I I don't have any high conviction that, you know, either of these two sides are going to win in the short term. It's not, never easy to have a high conviction, but at the end of the day, as an investor, as you well know, we um. need to have a conviction, which may be wrong in the end. And I've had quite a number of convictions in the last couple of years that turned out to be wrong. And you've had a number of convictions in the last couple of years that were dead right. But of course, there's always a future. We never come to the end of the road as investors. That's the difference between the, the stock market and the participants, is that the participants one day will be gone and the stock markets will not be gone. They'll continue. So uh, you never arrive at your destination, which is, of course, the exciting part of all this. I think that what you referred to is in America, that the fiscal largesse, uh, initiated by uh, President Biden, which is called the Inflation Reduction Act, which is very apt 
aptly known as the IRA right now, I think that the money that was thrown at consumers following the IRA, I thought it was a very bad idea at the time. And I think that the proof that it was a very bad idea at the time is that it was used very sparingly and very slowly. And so although you're right, and your colleague Peter uh, is right, I think that you'll find that the fiscal ammunition is slowly coming to an end. Um, incidentally, it was important and interesting to note how much of this Inflation Reduction Act money was used by individuals to gamble on the stock exchange instead of to go out and, and look after his daily needs. But that's something in brackets. So we've covered the bond markets. We've covered the central banks. We know from past conversations, you and I, that we are not overly enthusiastic about the quality of the central bankers. But at the same time, we can't blame them because they're in uncharted waters just as much as we are. And so they're learning on the job. But if there's one part of all this which doesn't learn on the job, that's the stock market itself. And I want to ask you and maybe even challenge you on something that you wrote to me the other day, which is that earnings revisions are going to come down, and they are coming down already, and we are in the middle of a, or at the beginning of an important earnings season now. They are going down. And if the earnings forecasts are being revised downwards, then lo and behold, the stock market is that much more expensive. Yes, but of course, it doesn't address the issue whether that's already been discounted. You see, in my opinion, it not only addresses the issue of whether it's been discounted, but it actually has been discounted. Because if you go back to the bottom of the market, that was roughly in September, October of last year, when there was maximum pessimism. Everybody wanted to get out, out, out. And then lo and behold, the market bottomed and has gone up quite a lot. I know the caveat, but these small number of stocks are by and large long duration assets, which are influenced by the bond markets. So you may still be right that this is um, the exception rather than the rule. I grant you that. But in my opinion, you can have two things going on in tandem, which is one, earnings revision downwards, and two, stock markets continuing to rise even if at the point of maximum pessimism, or let's say now as well, your 20 times earnings example is pretty striking. What I'm trying to say is that in the past, you might remember that whenever the market bottomed and earnings revisions went down, the PE ratio went up. But as markets look ahead, you were able to invest with a relatively high PE ratio and then the P.E. ratio came down again later on. I suppose what I'm saying is that there continues to be a situation where the stock of the bond markets are joined at the hip. The bond market calls the tune and the moderation of bond yields today, if it holds, will set the tone for the stock market. I guess that's in a nutshell what I'm saying. And that's in a nutshell how I would position myself as an investor. 
Okay, well, I mean, you're right in a technical sense. Of course, you're right about that. The other interesting factor here, which does relate to your own uh, method of investing, is the fact that corporate profits have remained so high already. They're still at a very high level. A number of reasons why that might be, but it's certainly a phenomenon despite these earnings revisions. It's certainly true that uh, company uh, profitability remains, I would say, surprisingly elevated. Uh, perhaps it's got a lot to do with that stimulus we've talked about, uh, and maybe also to some of the lack of competition in certain industries. I think where I would differ with you is, I guess my stance would be, because I don't have conviction, I'm not prepared to make a whole a whole bet on one particular course of action happening. I mean, you may be right. You may be right from a technical point of view. I'm more inclined to the old market adage, which is that if one reflects on historical experience, we find that bond yields rising is not in itself a bad thing for the stock market in the short term. Bond yields rising is a negative for the stock market in the longer term if they stay at a higher level than before. And that's really what we're talking about here. The bond market thinks that uh, we're not going to see that happen. They're going to come back down again. But if they did stay higher than expected, that will be a negative for the stock market in the medium to longer term in terms of the kind of absolute returns you can make from current levels. Uh, There might still be good positive returns, but they won't be anything like as good as we've seen in the past. And the old adage I was going to mention was sell the last rate hike. Because actually, rising bond yields are not necessarily bad for the stock market. But actually, it's when the Fed stops raising interest rates that that's when you should be thinking about the downside. I think that's when the equity market is going to decide whether it's heading lower or higher. And I don't personally feel the need to preempt or anticipate that happening. So I'm kind of slightly more guarded than you are. If you're right, and we had this sort of, uh, you're implying there'll be decent returns from equities in the short term, uh, you may be right. But, you know, I'm not prepared to chase that at the moment. I completely understand your point of view. And I think that probably the comments that I've been making now are too general in nature, not least because, as I said earlier, it's a very small number of investments that have produced the decent returns this year. Whereas if you exclude that small number of, and they're usually in the tech space, like Microsoft and companies like that, you put those aside, the market's done nothing special. But of course, you know that uh, from past conversations, and we know we've known each other for years, that I try and identify quality growth businesses, which by definition are long duration assets, because the value of that business lies in the perpetuity in its cash flows. And so they are much more related to what happens at the longer end of the bond market, even if these companies are not indebted, which usually they aren't. And those types of investments have behaved pretty well this year, to put it mildly. And of course, they're linked to the fact that bond yields have come down. So in a way, my interests and my conviction are more on the fringe, if you like. If you ask me, what is the market going to do as a whole, which I know you're going to do sooner or later, because you always do, (laughs) then I would probably say, I don't know. If you put a gun to my head, I would probably say that I think that the markets are going to go up during the rest of the year. But you're not going to put a gun to my head. And so I can say I don't really know. So we have a slightly different approach to this. And we nonetheless find some very interesting common ground for our discussions. 
I would agree in particular. I mean, I can come back to the point you just made. I totally agree with that. I mean, if we think that the problem in the future is not going to be so much the price of credit or price of debt, but the availability of credit, you want to go for uh, companies which have got the good balance sheets and got that resilience. And okay, the valuations may come down a little bit because they were quite high before. <laughs> I think we have to agree that. But I agree. I mean, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that there are a lot of kind of pessimistic voices out there. I don't want to be in that company, really. That's usually a bad sign. But uh, I still have a lot of equity investments, and they are in companies that have good balance sheets, you know, strong fundamentals and so on. And I'm not surprised that they're performing relatively well. And uh, of course, that's one of the reasons why you like to own them as well, Peter. So I think, you know, we're not in disagreement about that. It's, that's a question more of where in the equity market you want to have your chips, if you like. And, you know, you're permanently committed to your strategy because that's a long run winner. We know that. In the short term, I think they also they look attractive. I think, you know, this issue of availability of credit is absolutely fundamental. It's why we've seen such an interesting effect on the, the ratings of, for example, property investment trusts, something I look at very closely, and infrastructure trusts, both of which have been severely impacted by the increase in uh, bond yields. Uh, they've re-rated significantly. And the ones which have got the weaker balance sheets or the excessive commitments are the ones that have been punished most. And that's exactly how it should be. And I imagine some of them will go to the wall. Uh, but it is creating some opportunities as well. I mean, this week, just to give a very parochial example, we heard from uh, Blackstone, you know, the big private equity house, uh, that they just completed raising money for their largest ever property fund, <laughs> which is uh, maybe a contracyclical indicator, but it certainly uh, means there's going to be a lot of money to deploy. And they recently announced a bid for one of the industrial commercial property trusts in the UK, you know, at a 30% premium to the, the most recent share price, which suggests that, you know, if you've got a good portfolio and you're well managed, your, your balance sheet's under control, the re-rating of some of these property and infrastructure vehicles has been overdone. But I think it's very much a case of horses for courses, picking the quality ones. And, uh, you know, I think there'll be more activity like that as we uh, go into the next phase of the cycle. I think that's very interesting, the Blackstone example. And yes, I certainly spotted that. It was actually quite prominent in the news. I just want to introduce, as we're coming to the end, a final thought, which I do think is important, which is that slowly but surely, the health of the pension fund industry in general is much better now because yields are much higher. And so the result of discounting their liabilities at these levels of yields makes them look much better. If you remember in the last couple of years, one of the areas where you were dead right and I was dead wrong was that I argued that the pension funds are always on the lookout for yield and therefore they will prevent bond yields from rising more than a certain token and that they will kind of take over the QE function from the central banks. That was an opinion that I came to after many, many months of very careful thought, and it was dead wrong. At least from a timing point of view, it was dead wrong. But now, of course, that yields are 3 to 4% higher than they were when I first got it dead wrong, the situation looks completely different, and the pension funds look in a much better health than they were at the time. And I just wonder whether finally, like the stopped clock, my theory about the pension funds taking over from the central banks, as it were, to limit the rise in bond yields, could not actually be happening before our eyes. Because if I'm once again dead wrong, then indeed you could have your scenario whereby 
central banks continue on the hawkish side and all the rest of it with all the detrimental effects on equity markets accompanied by earnings downgrades and so on. But if for one time right, then it could put a floor over, if you like, bond yields, which as the year develops and as the market gets used to a new tighter range-bound cost of money, that that could actually give sucker, if that's the right word, to equity investors. Yes, well, that could be the case. I'm sure you're right. I mean, I suppose the only counter to that is that uh, if they're looking to buy bonds, there'll be plenty of them available. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, there won't be any any shortage of supply coming out of uh, governments in particular, but uh, there'll be plenty of supply to match that demand. Uh, so you may be right. Of course, we don't know what other stupid things the pension funds might be doing. Let's put it that way. Um, I mean, you saw this week there was some news about the uh, Swedish pension fund investor, which uh, basically turned out to have huge holdings of in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and so on. And uh, they've had to fire the CIO and all the rest of it, which was uh, <laughs> interesting. And, you know, this widespread selling of these uh, derivatives programs to try and get extra yield. You know, we haven't perhaps seen the end of all that yet. Uh, we saw it in the UK, obviously, in the, in the autumn. But you're right. I mean, that could be a source of demand for, for bonds. I'm, I'm sure that's right. I guess the other thing, though, is we just don't know what's happening in the rest of the, if you like, the shadow banking system. We don't know what's happening with private equity. We don't know what's happening with uh, hedge funds. We don't know what kind of stupidities may have been done in that area as well. So if we are seeing this issue about availability of credit going to sweep through the system, there will be more trouble in other parts of the, in other neck of the forest, I would suppose. But um, yeah, I think you may be right about that. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We've got lots of other things that we can talk about the next time we meet in a couple of weeks. We could, for example, talk about the geopolitical situation, which is very interesting. But what I find interesting is that the more complicated it gets and potentially the more dangerous it gets, the less influential it is on share prices. That I find quite interesting. Maybe we can talk about that next time. It is an interesting paradox, and you're right. And this week, we've had the big news about the big leak of all the US information about how the war is going, which is quite uh, alarming in a way. So that's it, Peter, for the moment. We're still wrestling with this uh, big dilemma, if you like, that we've formulated. I'm encouraged by the fact that we don't entirely agree. This is uh, giving me uh, more confidence. If we all agreed, it would be quite dull and quite boring, and also would be quite alarming, because it would mean that... uh, we could both be wrong then. We're both in the consensus. <laughs> so we'll come back to this another couple of weeks and we'll see how things have clarified. It really is such a fascinating year, which is why we decided to switch to a fortnightly uh, podcast, because the twists and turns as this whole story unravels is going to be fascinating as well as it's going to uh, you know, make or break some fortunes, I would say. I look forward to our next conversation, John. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.